Scene 17. No More Waka Waka. Tom Frank. Read by Jason Wethington. Followed by Original Audio Recording. To sum up Tom Frank in a few short paragraphs is an injustice to the depth of this man. I've written this introduction and erased it more times than I care to count. Tom is a true brother. He and his wife Polly are two of the most beautiful people I've ever met. Kind, generous, and joyful are a few words that sum him up. Residing in L.A. and appearing regularly at the Magic Castle, he has established himself as a cornerstone in the magical community. His youthful exuberance and passion for his art is palpable when you speak to him. He exudes magic. We first met in the mid to late 90s and shortly after I started working for him at his magic shop in downtown Cincinnati in the Tower Place Mall, nestled in the historic Crew Tower. To say these were formative years would be an understatement. Tom's knowledge is broad and his love for magic is deep. It comes as natural to him as breathing. He is as genuine a human being as I've come across. He'll tell you like it is, with no filter, but always with love in his heart. His is a knowledge that can be difficult to quantify because of the vast wealth of experience his life has had. Tom's presence in my life is one of my most treasured friendships in the world. On our trip to California, we arranged to meet Tom at the Magic Castle for the interview. However, between catching up with life, seeing amazing performers, getting involved in a little round robin, and what we would call literally the most magical tour we've ever been on, needless to say, we were a bit distracted. But Tom, being the awesome person that he is, agreed to meet up with us again a few days later while we were still in LA. We decided on a meeting spot in a coffee shop not far from where we were staying, but when Tom pulled up in his car, we ended up jumping in and heading up towards the Hollywood Hills. We made our way to a beautiful green park on the most perfect of days. Sun shining, kids laughing, dogs barking, it was indeed picturesque. We chose a concrete picnic table in the shade and got to business. How long have you been hiking? Mm -hmm. For a while. With Aaron Fisher, probably we started got a decade or nine years ago. Wow. Aaron Fisher and I used to hike this hill every morning. Nice. Yeah. years he's on the east coast now right back on the east so coast. he's in the tupelo mississippi mississippi huh. building his community yeah. yeah 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 he's doing his stuff looks great yeah yeah um last time yeah so we're in california and we're sitting down with the legendary the one and only mr tom <laughs> frank that's right smoking against the law here with our cigars and our cigarettes and our <laughs> Just looking for cops over our shoulders here. So we try not to I think it's the helicopter that's flying over. They found you, Jay. <laughs> they found you. Mr. Wellington. Yeah, so, uh, how'd you get your start in magic? <laughs> Drugs in high school. It's just stock cancer. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, no, I think, uh, you know, like most people, seven, eight years old, got a, uh, a magic set from my grandfather and and uh, 
had some of the tricks that in there were that were too hard to do as a seven year old, like multiplying billiard balls. There was a plastic set of those in there, and I'm like, I'm gonna have to put those aside. And, but came back to them years later, and uh, traveled with my folks. They, my dad worked for IBM, so we spent six years in Europe. And uh, the magic bug really hit while I was in Paris. There was a magic shop underneath the Champs Elysees that I used to go to, and they also used to sell a magic magazine in the corner, right. I like in the, in the newsstand. And it was uh, called Magic Magic. I think it was just called Magic Magazine, and it was put out by Tannins at the time. And I used to order magic tricks from a place called Haynes House of Cards, <laughs> which ended up a place several years later that I would start working out as a twelve-year-old. So my folks got divorced when I was 10. We moved back. My dad moved to Atlanta. We moved to Cincinnati and uh, started hanging out at a magic shop, took some magic lessons. I think I'd already taken lessons in Paris as well. And so, I mean, it, by 10 years old, I was the magic bug had really bitten pretty good. And I had bought my first trick deck and my first uh, temple screen and stratospheres and that sort of stuff. And uh, then started working at Haynes as a 12-year-old, going to conventions and pitching decks for them. And, and uh, then at 15, got my big break, Kings Island, yeah, right there. And I was going to the school for performing arts. And uh, as a 15-year-old, was making 250 bucks a week to do six 20-minute shows a day, which was great because it was sort of like work 20 minutes, get high for 40, work 20 minutes, get, you know, 15-year-old, no expenses. That's a pretty good job in 1981. Yeah. So that's where things started to get serious in terms of uh, learning the craft. And I think it, would, it also put me, it was a good uh, precursor to uh, the street performing. Because this was the first year that they had done, which was basically strolling magic. They called it atmosphere performing at, at Kings Island, which is an amusement park. Uh, and uh, so they would just say, we have this brand new roller coaster. There's a two-hour line the roller coaster is broken. Go make these people happy. So it was certainly got my uh, classic force down there. <laughs> Seriously, as a 15 year old, I would just rock the classic. When you can practice something like that 150 times a day for real people in real world conditions, it, it uh, sets you up. So I think that was the same year that I met Cellini for the first time, where I'd gone down to a sugar bowl with my dad. I was, like I said, I was in high school. And, uh, met Cellini and he said to me at that point like this is kind of a funny little story where where meeting Cellini was a very pivotal point for me and I met him and walked up to him and said hey I'm a magician had a big smile on my face and you know, I didn't know what he was going to say so he throws a deck of cards at me and says do something <laughs> and I knew this is sort of the moment right I'm either going to get to meet this guy or not and I didn't know who he was from Adam so uh so I did something for him and then he uh he uh Liked what I did, and <clears throat> then he said, "Do you have any pot?" <laughs> no, I'm 15. I'm on vacation. No, I don't have any pot, dude. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, he said, he gives me some advice. He says, "If you really want to learn how to do magic, go to New York City, be a street performer." I'm like, "Wow, that's pretty interesting." So, a couple few years later, I'm 18 years old. I drop out of high school. I move to New York City to be a street performer, and I see him there. And he's on his way out of town. He's just leaving. And I said, wow, I met you a few years ago. And you said, if you want to learn magic, you know, come to New York City and be a... And he says, I don't know why I would say that. That's horrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> but I was there anyway. So I was was in New York City in 1983 for a season. And then that was, uh, that was pretty good. 
and that was certainly talk about formative years of, uh, you know, and I think I was too stupid to even know that there was potential danger involved in being there. You know, I didn't, I, st I still don't really see it that way, but it was funny. I was watching a movie the other day and these guys go and all of a sudden they're in a very dangerous situation somewhere like in Spanish Harlem. And I'm like, dude, I lived that moment. I was, you know, I was the one white kid there and 18 years old in Spanish Harlem with a bunch of guys, you know, I like, I didn't know that, you know, but it, it, I never had any, any issues. So after New York city, then I think I went down to spent a little while with my dad, tried to go to college for a year. Then went to, uh, then moved down to new Orleans where I got to study with Cellini for a year. And then that was a real, a real it's funny. I have a lot of people that say you're my mentor. I'm like, I'm not your mentor. I barely know you. <laughs> I may have shown you a trick or two, you know, but I'm not your mentor. You know, to me, Cellini was a real mentor. What happened was he, he would do a show and I already had a repertoire of, of facts. In fact, strangely, I'm doing the same act I did as a 15 year old, probably, uh, with a lot, hopefully a lot of <laughs> modifications and timing. Um, but, uh, so he was a great teacher in that he would teach me how to draw a crowd. And then he would say, now you do it. And he would sit there and he would watch me. And then we would talk in between shows and then he would show me another element. And there was a lot of that working closely together daily, daily wow. of uh, trading off shows with him and having input from him in between each show and watching him do his shows. And uh, he was making a thousand dollars a day on the street back then in 1984. Wow. And uh, do you remember the advice that he would give you for drawing in the crowd? Do you want to that? You know, he had some, some basic simple philosophies about street performing in general, which is get the crowd, keep the crowd, get the money, turn it over and do it again just crank them out. He also had another piece of advice that was kind of interesting. Be the first one out in the morning, the last one to go home, and never eat out. As I found out at lunch today, why that's good advice. <laughs> um, but in, in terms of some of the uh, specific advice, you know, it, it's sort of textbook street performing. You know, you stop the first person, the rest are going to be easy. You, you begin to, to put people sort of position them in, you know, and then he had a nice little trick where he would put the table up here and have people nice and tight. And then once you've got four or five, six, seven people, then you pull the table back and you leave that front line there and then you continue to grow your circle that way. And so that was some of the, the what he taught me so i don't know if i'm answering the question no no yeah, yeah, yeah. what do you think was me. the in your opinion what was the i don't want to say the greatest or the best piece of advice but the one that kind of like what you were talking about with the table another piece of advice maybe that sticks out in your mind that you know i, I think that overall it was his work ethic right you know it's funny he also would say one thing that that might have been good advice at one point, but no longer seems to be good advice for me. In fact, that's the weird thing about a lot of this, the advice is it's no longer valid anymore. The world has changed. In fact, if Cellini was here today to see what street performing is like in America, he wouldn't stop throwing up. He just, you know, ugly. <laughs> in fact, that's why he left. He much preferred Europe than, than the States in terms of how... Uh, you know, in Europe, people really respect it culturally. And here people look at me as though I'm a step up from a homeless guy, right. you know, which is funny because it's like, all right, I'm wearing a thousand dollar microphone, $500 sound system, you know, $300 table. And I'm a homeless guy. Yeah, whatever. I've got a nice rig for <laughs> <laughs> rolling around in his LA. <laughs>
so actually, I, I should say that that before Cellini, I had some really other good mentors as a kid, mm-hmm. and that there were a couple of really key guys, a guy named Larry Pringle, who you know really taught me the beauty of card magic is at an early age, maybe 12, at 12 years old, he introduced me to Erdenace. And that was certainly why I became a juvenile delinquent and a <laughs> truant. <laughs> you know, in fact, when most kids were studying uh, algebra, I was learning push through shuffles and uh, overhand jog shuffle systems. Yeah. So, uh, so him and another guy named uh, Paul Swinford, who wrote a couple books, Pharaoh fantasies, more Pharaoh fantasies, very obscure titles that nobody has ever heard of. Um, but nonetheless, great magicians, great, great lessons and sort of put me on the road. So when I was when I got to, to be with Cellini, I wasn't really looking for material and he had plenty of it to share. Right. But I pretty much had the material that I was working with. And most of the advice was, you know, just how to how to attract the crowd, you know, how to how to get them. And, you know, I guess the, the, what used to work back then. Now we're going back 32 years. Hey. Come over here. You want to see some magic? Hey, showtime. Magic show. Hey. Right. That used to work. Right. That doesn't work anymore. Right. In fact, over the last decade, it's been a real study of mine to look at. Uh, in fact, this is how I break it down these days. The harder you try to stop somebody, the less they want to see you. So now I've, changed, I've, told, I've had to take that and just turn it completely upside down. So now I don't engage the audience. I don't even look at them. I just put on some music. I put on some nice music and I start, you know, yeah. I start shuffling and I start trying to impress myself. And, and, uh, <laughs> invariably within five minutes, you've got a couple of people there wanting to see. And I think what I've learned these days is just be patient. It's going to happen. It's got to happen. You know, it doesn't happen. I'm just go home. I <laughs> but it's, it's more of a, you know, just patient. Don't try to try to. And the other thing that I can't, stress enough and and you guys are on the borderline of of age wise for this but there was a day and you guys certainly remember this there was a day before the internet yeah i mean when you think of 20 year olds they don't remember a day before you know when there wasn't the internet cell phones same way there were no cell phones and imagine the attention span of a tourist without their phone you know, back in the day, people had an interest level of watching the show and and not that they won't watch a show these days, but, you know, it's not uncommon to have people in your front row texting. And there's a lot of magicians and Gazo, he's, he's brutal with that sort of stuff. And I sort of have my own philosophy, Zen philosophy about it. And my attitude is if you're texting, you're not heckling. Right. So, <laughs> you get a pass. You want to text yeah. in my show, it means your mouth is shut. Right. So I don't have a problem with that. When, when you were starting out street performing, were you, did you have set material or were you constantly working in new things? You know, I think I have tried just about every trick I know in my street act, but you know, it's funny that the older I get and the more that I work this material, like I was working the, the, the bar, the WC Fields bar in the, the castle, and I had this sheet of paper that had all of my B and C material through the years. And I'm like, I want to work this in. This is stuff that I, these are tricks I love, like McDonald's Aces. You know, it's like, wow, why don't I do that? You know, and why don't I do this? And I found out very quickly why I don't do a lot of this stuff that like, for instance, that what I, what I did for you guys the other night, the three card mental problem and the, uh, the, the Zingoni mental problem. Those are not crowd tricks. You know, they're just not, I mean, they're, they're, 
they have a very different tone. So there's a lot of magic. And I find that the more cerebral the magic is, the less it has any spot in my working show. Right. Interesting. Because people don't want to be cerebral. Right. And that's maybe why Danny's act is so successful is because there's nothing to think about. Right. It happens to you. It happens, you know. Yeah, yeah. He face rapes you with visuals. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, that's the best description. Eyeballs pop out, the mouth goes, the tongue is out. It's like, what? And that's why, you know, it's funny. There are some things that I do, like Doc Daly's last trick. You know, it's like, wow, forever that trick since the Kings Island Amusement Park. That's always been a part of what I do. And after reading uh, Darwin Ortez's Strong Magic, it gave me ideas about how to mix the presentation up a little bit. Now, I love a... Something Bob Reed said, and it's a quote on the back of the book where he said, I'd rather learn how to make the tricks that I do better than learn 10 new tricks. Mm. And that's sort of where I've come come from for the last three decades is not necessarily. And, and not to say that, you know, Jay worked at my magic shop. We had an opportunity to play with a lot of magic tricks. God, do you remember the little rattle box with the card case? And do you remember the Lippincott box with the quarter? You know, you know, it's not as though we don't have a really wide, broad uh, choice of effects to do, <clears throat> but given that I had this early uh, formative teachings, I was stuck on the classics as a kid: cups and balls, linking rings, billiard balls. You know, I mean that the cards, coins, coin manipulations. You know that. that uh, uh, so, yeah, I have put in a lot of I've you know worked, and then also there's a, a wonderful place to if you want to work on new stuff on the street. It's during the crowd gathering sequence. You know, depending on how big a crowd you want to gather, wow, I've got an extra 10 minutes to do whatever I want to do that's not necessarily in the formal show. So, you know, that's why McDonald's Aces is coming back a little bit for me, you know, and some some of those things. That's awesome. So then maybe just to finish up, go finish, breeze breeze through the last, uh, I think we covered about 15 years there so far. So uh, New Orleans and then went to... uh, it was really high that year. I, I don't know. I, then I went to Boston, and I, I don't know if this is appropriate to talk about this or not, but there was a guy who got me in a lot of trouble. Mm. guy that uh, – actually, there was some some element of learning in this, in this, and I think I was 19 years old at this point. And this guy, a friend of mine who was a total sociopath and uh, a criminal, had convinced me <clears> – a <throat> con man – had convinced me that by leading a life of crime – that I would be taking a postgraduate degree in deception. And he said, if you can make a coin disappear, great. You can make half a dozen brand new Macintoshes and boxes disappear from a computer store, even better. And I was young enough and naive enough and uh, uh, dumb enough to, uh, to follow along with this. And uh, I did learn a lot about deception and we were a two man crime wave for about nine months until I ended up in jail. And then that sort of changed that. <laughs> Strangely, this other fellow who was the, uh, the guy that was the, the guy that got me into it, uh, he's been in and out of jail for the last 30 years. So I, I look at his life and I go, wow, that could have been me. You know, I'm glad that I made, glad that I learned some choices. Uh. So after that, that was uh, in 1984. And then moved back to Cincinnati after that got, you know, everything sort of my whole life caved in on me. 
got arrested and then my sister died and, you know, I think I was 19 and it was very hard. And then I was in a depression for, for a while. And then I decide, wow, you got to get out of the depression. You got to, I'm 20 years old, right? I'm got to do something with my life here. So I decide, why don't you move to California and move in with Danny Sylvester? <laughs> and so uh, 21 and 22 was, was with Danny Sylvester in LA, hanging out with Di Vernon and Larry Jennings and Bruce Servon and, uh, you know, the whole gang, Jim Patton, and Roger Klaus, and all of those guys. And uh, that was the first year that I worked the castle. So, and that was also the first year that I got to do a lecture in uh, Tokyo. Wow. So here I am, 21 years old, <coughs> lecturing in Tokyo, you know, and it sort of got me out of my funk. And uh, then after that, two years in LA, uh, moved back to Cincinnati, where all of a sudden my income doubled. <laughs> Where I'd lived in LA, where it's just this is a tough place to work. You know, it's a lot of lot of competition. Moved back to Cincinnati, uh, started uh, seeing again who would be my first wife, and uh, uh, that's when I started getting serious about the business of it. And I think I got the Joel Bauer book, Hustle, Hustle, and that changed my life. And then I was on the road to corporate identity, and uh, I think I went through the American Fund Company was the first one, and then I think Industrial Strength Magic was the next one, and. Uh, did that for a few years and then did comedy clubs, uh, comedy clubs and corporate work for a few years and then opened up a magic shop in 94 and did that for a decade. And then those were good days, huh? Those were really awesome days. That's right. I just had a flashback in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, moved out to Seattle for a couple of years to do uh, to open up a shop there. And then the shop went under there. So I did two more years of street performing in Seattle at Pike Place Market and then came down here. And for the last decade, I've uh, just been working at the Universal City Walk, uh, pitching trick decks like I did when I was 12. Interesting. Things come full circle. And uh, and, uh, and I worked the castle. So that's uh, that's sort of the uh, chronology of, of my bullshit. When you're performing, do you consider yourself a character? Or is it more of a heightened sense of you? I'm not even so sure it's that anymore. <laughs> I'm not even sure what it is. You know, that's why I feel like I, I'm in this total... Uh, in fact, i got to be honest with you. I, I'm having... The way I put it to Polly the other day was I'm having an existential crisis. And she's like, what do you mean? And I said... I think magic's stupid. I think I've wasted my fucking life on something that just doesn't mean shit to anybody. And I think that's part of what magicians, part of the insufferability of magicians, is that they put it in their mind that someone actually gives a shit. And I'm really trying to examine that really closely. Now, that's not to say that you can't create a very intimate and magical moment. And that those moments are the ones that are real. But I think I'm getting to a point where, and this is a weird, this is a quote from me. I'm not even sure if it makes any sense yet, but the best trick you may do is the one you don't do. That make any sense? Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I think I was telling you guys the other day about, uh, you know, the the idea of pass the deck. You know, I mean, there was just things that was instilled in me as a kid. And uh, the insufferability can be overwhelming with, with performing types. And I love a line in John Carney's act. We saw him the first night. You guys were here, right? And he says, why do I crave the love of strangers? <laughs> and to me, it was like, wow, you have just distilled down the whole thing 
to that joke. And the truth of that joke is shattering. And I, I think that's where I'm at now. So I like to think of my character as a, uh, an, a heightened extension of myself. But then, you know, I'm working the Peller with Sean last week, and Sean is like, you know, why don't you do this? Why don't you, you know, for your ring routine, why don't you punch up the ending? Why don't you, you know, you, uh, you know, hit your syllables a little harder? And I'm, I'm like, and I did it that way for just for his benefit. Right. And what was interesting was at the end of it, I realized, wow, this is the way I used to do it 20 years ago. When I had no, and it's funny, Dan has coached me for 30 years on how to recite the poetry in the rings. And I trust Danny and he went to school and studied poetry, and he has been trying to tell me, you punch your syllables too much. You, you know, you articulate too much. You're, you know, he says, that's not the goal of poetry. He says, people know there's rhymes. They're not stupid. You don't need to uh, drive that point home by enunciate, you know, and it's like, you know, this mystic feat I now perform, you know, it's like, you know. And, and Sean's like, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, more conversational. So I was doing it a lot of different ways through the week. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that I feel that I have evolved as a performer and as a human and, and that I'm not even so sure that I need to be a heightened extension of myself anymore. And that, that for my entire career, I have been. You know, I like that idea of kicking it up and being the guy and, you know, and commanding the attention. But it's like, the more I look at what John Carney did, there was so little of that. There was so, you know, I can't, I'm not sure there was any of it in there. He was sort of downbeat and genuine. And here's the key word that I'm learning, vulnerable. I think that, you know, if I could say, if what have I learned about character development lately is honesty and vulnerability. You know, if they get a sense that you're a human being and that you're not just a joke, you know, and I think I, a friend of mine was nice and bla or just very, he says, you're so waka waka. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like Fozzie yeah. Bear, you know, yeah, Fozzie yeah. Bear, you're waka waka waka. And, and, you know, I guess I always knew that, but I don't think I'd ever tried to do anything about it. Right. And so I've been really trying to minimize all that waka waka down to nothing. And I think that when you get to a certain point, and it's, what's funny is, is the jokes are still a crutch for me. If I'm sort of sliding, failing with the audience, or I'm not feeling that this refined attitude is, is nailing, all of the waka waka seems to come back out real quick. And it's like, you know, I, I know that there's, you know, the older I get, the more I'm convinced that, uh, actually, my wife has helped me with this. I'm king of not funny. Say. whatever i think is really funny is not really funny and that i said this to danny the other night because we were both working i said i seem to be funniest when i'm not trying to be funny and he says well that's with everybody and i, I didn't know that i mean i maybe that's a universal truth that we are all truly funnier when we don't even know that we've said something that's, that's funny but I mean, to give you an idea of, and that's not to say that not funny doesn't get laughs. And that's what's always confused me and maybe even <laughs> ruined me to a level. Because when I worked at comedy clubs back in the 80s, they laugh at anything. You know, you just come out on stage, you start doing your thing. Everybody's drunk and laughing. It's like sort of the castle audiences. You know, you've got a well-lubricated audience. They're going to have a good time. <clears throat> My favorite not funny joke is, have you guys ever seen Magic Coins before? 
I have some magic coins right here. Nope, that's my dick. <laughs> not funny. Not funny. No, not really. I mean, it's shock humor. You know, it gets that level. But I mean, it's, it's not a good joke. I mean, I, I think it's hilarious. That's how I know it's not funny now. But uh, but these are some, I guess, some revisions when we, you know, it, I guess it's funny. I'm 50. I'll be 51 next month. And a guy like Danny and a lot of these guys that you're talking to, it's like they've sort of come out on the other side. Mm. I feel like I'm in the middle of something horrible. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I, I guess it's, uh, you know, I don't think magic is stupid. I think magic is beautiful. I think magic has provided me a lifestyle and uh, a life, maybe several. And... Uh, I wouldn't change it for the world, but I do think that it's important to to realize that not everybody wants to see a trick. And those are usually the people that don't want to see two tricks or three. And that if we can become evolved enough to know, and I think table hoppers get a great sense of that. You know, it's like, I think, or they should at least, or they should. They're learning something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... We've all worked those tables that are like, no, thank you, no. And it's like, that's cool, whatever. Fuck yeah. you. <laughs> well, I worked at worked a restaurant for six years. And the owner, the head owner, would always come up to me and go, you, see, you need to go do some magic for those businessmen sitting over there in suits discussing business. I'm like, they're, no, they're, I know who wants to see me perform. They're no, that's not. Okay. Oh, there's the two-year-old. Go do magic for the two-year-old. I'm like, that two-year-old's not going to... The parents might like it. The two-year-old's not going to get it. It's not really going to... Yeah, I completely understand. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to do math tricks for two-year-olds. <laughs> just, just a square. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just for the look on the parent's face, really. I make the kid do the math, though. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. <laughs> Do you feel like, at least from what I'm hearing, the the masks that you've worn in the past when you've performed, those are now coming off to where you're getting closer to communicating the real person with your audience and not being afraid of communicating that with your audience? Being in front of I them. I think it's just really, yeah, just understanding that, uh, like, you know, the smash and stab routine that I do is, it's interesting. That's the first trick I ever scripted. Mm -hmm. And... There is more narrative about who I am in that effect than any other trick that I do. Right. You learn about my background. You learn that I got four kids and two ex-wives. And, you know, you know, <laughs> all, you know, I mean, there's a lot of narrative in there. And I think that, that the more that it becomes less about what you're doing and more about who you are, the better. Now, that can also go too far. And you can see people that are story magic heavy typically the bizarrists or, you know, I mean, and it can be heavy handed then, but it's typically for a dramatic purpose. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's talk about a character. If you're going for, you know, those guys go for a pretty heavy character. Um, and I would imagine that resonates with some people and that, you know, that, that some people fall short because it lacks the honesty of who they are. You know, I'm not Mr. Mysterio. You know, I don't think many people are. So, yeah, I would say, you know, I'm just trying to figure it out. You know, I'm just trying to figure out if magic is stupid or not. You know? It very well may be. You know? <laughs> I mean, certainly based on uh, 
consumers, the consumerist mentality of magicians, that certainly doesn't lend itself well to them having brains. You know, and I had a magic shop for a dozen years, so I know that, that some people, it's just about buying and seeing and acquiring and moving on to the next thing. And it's like, I've never been that way. I've always sort of been, you know, when I, when I used to tell this to some customers, instead of buying a new trick, why don't you take the one you bought last week and practice it and come in here and do it? And then I'm like, no, I'll take your money though. Here, we'll tell you something new. <laughs> We have a new ITR, right. <laughs> electronic hummingbird reel. You know, got one of those for you. <laughs> Transmental gem station and brass. Yes. Triple the price. Sock o magic. Magic, magic. <laughs> so I'm just trying to f figure it out. I wish I had more, uh, you know, I mean, I have certainly ha had a life in magic. So I, I it, you know, I've made my, I've never had a real job, really. Uh, which is totally screwing me at the moment now because I did try recently to get a real job and uh, they said I was unhirable. Oh. And I, I had to look it up. <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> and evidently, some people like, I don't know, people that get laid off or whatever and they're out of the workforce too long. Imagine this, trying to fill a resume out and being your only boss ever. Right. <laughs> you know what? What am I going to do? Put down the uh, put down the. Uh... So now I've accepted that I'm, I'm stuck being a magician for the rest of my life because it's the only thing I'm qualified to do. <laughs> I think about going back into retail again, but uh, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, I think people just want to be engaged. People want to have fun. People, you know, they don't uh, they don't want to be browbeat with effect. I don't believe right. And I think you look at somebody, boy, did you guys talk to Max Maven while you're here in town? No. We we had, Max was at the Genie Convention. And um, we were, yeah, we were going to ask him, but he had to have his appendix removed or something. That's right. That's right. He had to leave for that. Yeah, he, uh, he had to leave the hotel very quickly. So. Yeah, I forgot about that. Well, he is here in town. No, I'm not uh, really tight with him, but uh, I'm not sure how he would. Seems like a nice enough guy, though. Yeah. Seems pretty approachable. But he's, I mean, there's, I guess the reason that he comes to mind is he's another one of these guys that's heavy handed with character, but nails it. Yeah. You know, he is a freak. Yeah. And he does it, you know, he's, but he's also, he backs it off enough yeah. that it's not, you know, you know. He has those moments of where he takes it almost too far with the audience, but then he knows like to step back and there's that tension. I, and I love his opening. He comes out on stage, gives the audience a sort of a glare, and then says, boo. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. Sort of sets up the entire evening you're about to experience. Do you feel like you have anything? Because you're using music a lot now when you're street performing, where you're sort of your engaged through non-engagement. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I find that at least for the, uh, I, you know, I have been working more with music lately and I find that here in LA, I don't know if it's the same in, in uh, Southern Florida or not, but uh, on any given day, any given show, half the people in your audience may not speak English. Yeah. And that, that do it using the music, the more music I can use, the better for that, 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 that in that respect. Right. But, Ultimately, it's sort of come down to, you know, I'm in fact, just a, 
my street performing is nothing like what it used to be. I've taken the act out of my act. Mm-hmm. I don't do the cups anymore. I don't do the rings anymore. I don't do the coins anymore. You know, what do you do? I create the illusion that I'm doing a street show. And as soon as I get the crowd, I take a sharp left turn into commerce. <laughs> with a good trick deck picture too. And I, then I take the other turn, I turn back right, and I go back into a, a little little finale, and then I pass the hat. So the idea is you saw a little show. You liked it enough to tip or not tip, but now selling the decks after, and it's like, you know, if you sell five decks at the end of the show at 20 bucks a pop, that's not a bad six minutes. You know, that's a, or six hours, depending on the day. <laughs> How many days are you performing? Uh, I don't feel like I've worked in a while since Harry Potter kicked me out right. of, uh, of that. Uh, I shouldn't really say it that way because I told you I got nothing but love for the city walk. Yeah, and no. That's all good. Uh, They're um, just putting in the – is it already in? Or? Yeah, no, it's oh, – yeah. so they, they had a soft so open just, for a month, and now they're, uh, they, they just opened last week. Uh, and uh, as we get into the summer, I'm sure they'll, they'll take a look at the traffic patterns. But, uh, yeah, so that was there. So now I just got to figure out whether I want to still be a street performer, which I don't think I do. I mean, I don't want to go to Hollywood and Highland and work next to Elmo and Spider-Man. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Third Street Promenade is, is another viable option as well as Venice Beach. But uh, I don't know. I think it might be time to start cultivating a, a clientele like every other working magician in this town. and booking some gigs or some restaurants or, you know, trying to, trying to put it together that way. So. Uh, um, what was the question I was going to ask? I don't know. See, this is when you guys are slowly realizing he has nothing to say. <laughs> he has nothing to contribute. He should be put in mental health. <laughs> he fucking needs some Prozac. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was interested about you talking um, that magic is stupid, right? Uh, it's just from my own perspective, what I hear, because I kind of find it the same way, which is the reason why I dropped out, it's, it's becoming more difficult to find the magic in it, in whatever it is, whether it's a card trick or, you know, like we were watching Carney do the thimbles and as psychedelic of an experience as that was like vanishing and appearing in front of you. And as a, even as a well-versed magician, it's beautifully done. But you're like, where's the, where's the magic in that? Is it just in that? Oh, wow. That was really trippy. And that's just a, a great visual or is there anything more to it? Well, I think John's got a great sense of, uh, the lightheartedness of it. You know, I think that you look at at John Carney's act and you see a beautifully crafted sleight of hand expert with a lighthearted routine, you know? So it's like, I'm not looking for in an act like that. I'm not necessarily looking for a lot of depth, you know? And I think for most of the magic, the most of the magic that I watch, I'm not overly critical. It seems that I'm just overly, you know, I'm sort of in this existential crisis for like <laughs> it's not the right way to say it though what is my how would you define where I, what i'm in i mean is it an existential crisis is it a funk. just a funk it's, yeah it's just a funk it's been going on a long time though <laughs> it's a strong funk i don't know i guess i you know i think that it's more when i look out into the audiences of my street shows and i just don't see a lot of joy 
You know, I don't see a lot. And it's, it's like that wears you down after a while, of, you know. In fact, it got to a point where, in fact, this is how not right it was sort of at the end for me is I was at a point where I don't need your smiles or your applause or your adulation. Ultimately, I just need your money. <laughs> You know, and that's, you know, when I say it that way, it doesn't sound very good. It doesn't sound very artistic. It doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of love in there. You know, I still love what I do, but it's like, come on, people. Do you think that you just became comfortable? A little too comfortable? No, I don't think so, because I'm constantly trying to, constantly trying to figure it out. You know, it's it's like, in fact, the way that I like to look at, look at my own performing, and I think that it must be this way for, for most people, is that it's an organic and breathing process. And that each show is slightly different based on the people that are in front of you. And, you know, the, one of the things, one of the reasons why people were like that, and I had to grow to accept that I enjoy performing for people leaving Universal Studios. Now, what does that really mean? It means that the people that I've chosen to work for have just spent 12 to 13 hours hemorrhaging cash all day long. And what do they get at the end of the day? me <laughs> so now that doesn't mean that they're not standing there and enjoying it it just means that they're physically incapable of showing any joy you know <laughs> and that's sort of where and in fact i got to a point where do you remember that show that was on maybe five six years ago for a while i think it was called a liar no it was it was about a guy who studied facial yeah liar uh lie to me lie to me yeah 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 and that show all of a sudden there was an epiphany i'm like wow micro expressions. I never heard of that. So then it became very much my job not to look for what was clearly not there, which were the smiles and the applause, but what was there. Mm -hmm. And it may just be a slight turning of the corner up or a slight wrinkle of the brow or maybe a little twinkle in the eye. And so that's sort of when it was like, now I'm coming on to something. Now I'm beginning to understand that it's not always about cheerleading. You guys ready to see the finale? Come on, give me a yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you ready? Yeah, give me a yeah. You know, that was, it's so funny. But that stuff is the street performing stuff of gold of yesteryear. <laughs> right. You know, in fact, Cellini used to call that unifying the audience. You know, anytime. In fact, it goes back to something. That he, these are very heavy discussions that he would have about crowd mentality. And it's funny. Back then, I don't think people really understood what that meant as well. Uh, but these days, certainly with all these freaking rallies and the group mentality where the idea is that people lose their individuality in a crowd and that they take the mindset of the crowd. So as a street performer, you want to use that to your advantage so that by saying, you guys ready to see the show? Give me a yes. And the entire audience, yes. And you do that 10 times through your act. By the time you ask for money, they're going to act responsibly as a crowd, as a group. And that used to work beautifully. <laughs> and nowadays you say, give me a yeah. And this is what you hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I a crickets, cricket sound. <laughs> yeah, so now some guys are very good at it still. And uh, I think, but I, I think though, though, in my own development it's like i want to do that less i don't want to be a cheerleader i don't want to tell you when to clap you know wow i'm gonna you know and then you see guys do it all the time and then they throw jokes in there in fact i you know 
In fact, here's my favorite not funny joke from, from lack of response. Did you all come from the same funeral? <laughs> and then somehow go, no, oh, different funerals. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's classic not funny for me, you know. But, but, you know, strangely, it would get a laugh. It would actually snap them out of their catatonic stupor long enough to go, oh, we're actually involved in something here. We're not just standing here. So, so I think that there's a... Uh, I don't know. Just I, I like this idea of I'm looking now, not so much for what isn't there, but what is there? Mm. What is there? What are you feeling? What are you reacting to? Are you even there? Are you in there? And we can tell we're standing two feet away from our spectators or even on stage. You can see the first 10 rows. You know, you can, that, you know, you can tell. So I, I think that, uh, you know, if there's any evolution in what I'm learning as a performer, it's not to be waka waka, <laughs> you know. In fact, if, if I could give any advice is, and I was thinking too today that there was a guy that I took magic lessons for. I was telling Polly this story just last night that uh, we learn by imitating. And uh, he must have been my first exposure to not funny because this guy was sort of a guy's name was Paul Rowling and he worked at Haynes and... <clears throat> He exposed me to every hack stock line that was ever written. And what's funny is you still see guys doing this. Can I see your hand? Say the line. No, the clean one. Exactly. Say the tagline. Uh, that's, no, the other one was a clean one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so these jokes, these bad jokes are embedded in our DNA as magicians somehow. Yeah. And I think that we all are guilty Sylvester the Jester is not guilty of this stuff because he is the only one of anyone that you will talk to that can truly say everything in his act is original. And that's true. You know, it's like because I'm stuck on the classics, it means that I'm derivative to some sense of it. You know, I mean, I love the love it. I like to think that my cups routine is different than other people's cups routines, but still the cups and balls, you know, yeah. it's still a fake pass. And, uh, <clears throat> You can be done with me whenever you want. Don't, don't feel like you're going to drag this thing out how long forever. we can do the awkward silence. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just giving you the out, you know. I'm going to be the only one. You said everybody said it. Everybody said it. Yeah, Tom said it. He was the only one that was right, though. <laughs> he kept trying to give us a way out. But no. I don't know. You know, I was thinking about, though, attitudes I've had about my character in the past. Mm. And I think there was a time where I was fully engaged with not funny and, and committed to it. Right. In fact, there were times in my comedy club days where I liked the idea of being edgy. I liked the idea of saying things that people wouldn't expect or, you know, and, you know, not worried about foul mouth or, or a crude or, you know, whatever, just, you know, but, but I think now, I don't know. Maybe it was just a different world back then. Yeah. Well, I think too, like, uh, you know, when I first met you and I think that was right in the beginning of like industrial strength magic, you were creating that brand and branding is, is character building. It's the same components. Basically one, you're just doing it to build. A I spent more money on character building. Than <laughs> <laughs> Remember that coloring book? Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. <laughs> 
to get that's that a, consistency in the in the brand and the imagery and the. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, I had a great graphic artist and I had a great printer and these guys were great. They would say, "Do whatever you want. Pay me whenever you can." Wow. Wow. Full color printing back then. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, so that you know, through that industrial strength magic era, though, I you know, it was funny. I was trying to walk the line of being edgy corporate, mm. you know. And I think though that other guys probably did it way better than me. I mean, I'm sure that uh, you know, Bill Malone, he's slightly edgy, you know. He's he's, yeah. he's certainly not normal corporate. No, you know. No. And then uh, lovable edgy. And Joel Bauer, you know, I mean, you look at a guy like that. Holy shit! I've been to yeah. two of his seminars yeah. in the last while. No, I'm not a millionaire yet, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you what, he's quite a character. I mean, he's a, yeah. holy shit, a bull in a china shop, that guy. Yeah. I think I'm just learning that, that, uh, I don't know, that there, there's a subtlety that I'm after, but it, it's, it's almost so subtle that you don't see it or you don't get to see it because I'm not going to do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. To like help create the anticipation for your tricks or anything. Yeah. <laughs> never. I like the round robins. You know, I love doing that. I love watching the new guys. I love, you know, I love watching magic. I just saw three shows today. Yeah. You know, I saw Bruce Gold. And then I saw, you know, those guys, uh, Chris Randall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, then AJ. So... And you know what? To be honest with you, I feel like I hold my own on with any of them. You know, there's nobody at the castle that I wouldn't share a stage with. There's nobody that I'm going to be flustered performing in front of. I feel it's not as though just because I'm in a funk. And you know what? This is, you know, I don't need to tell any of any magician anywhere, any entertainer that you probably are your best performer when your heart is breaking. You know, when you have to work against those odds you know that that wow I'm, that's when you're a real professional about it but it's like wow when you're really happy and you do it you know it's it's uh, even better but it maybe it's not as raw you know it's not as uh it made no sense whatsoever no it did it did sure. you're not fighting you're not fighting for it you're not you know it's not a sense of urgency is there any other questions i'm drawing a huge blank See, if I had a character, it would be better. I, I would just, no, 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 no. This is more like, and, it's not just and a I think it's an interesting, in a sense, it's an interesting juxtaposition, right? Because you think about a guy like Danny, right? Who is on stage all character, right? He becomes a whole nother being. You, on the other hand, who were, was at one point almost a whole nother being, this waka, waka, waka. And now you're peeling off those layers and peeling off of that those characters in a sense to get to a more who real version. Who, who we are as performers. That's, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Thank you for synthesizing <laughs> 40 minutes of bullshit. In the one Thank you. I have a student here, Dave Ramey. He's a horse doctor. And uh, for being somebody who's done magic less than three years, I've never met anybody who had such a gift for taking a trick and making it less about the trick and more about who he is as a person. Mm. And to give you an example, he took the Dean's box and he bought this nice brand new Dean's box. And the first thing he did was weather it. And he made it look like a little horse stall. 
and he put a little horse in there. And there's this little horse thing attached to the wall where the horse is eating. And then he starts That's talking awesome. about, do you know, I don't know if you know this, but you can tie a horse up and they can get out. You know why? It's their magic. <laughs> <laughs> and then he does the Dean's box with the rope, sort of illustrating. And it's like, That's wow, beautiful. you've just told the audience something about yourself and you're going to turn it into a magic trick. And he finds a very seamless way to do that with almost every effect. And I'm learning from him in that respect. And I think that that's what I did with uh, with uh, the smash and stab was this personal narrative about sharing who you are, you know, or what was it that, you know, what was a uh, Eugene Berger was fond of saying, who is this guy and why should I care? I'd like to answer that question in my act. If I could head somewhere, if I'm if I am heading somewhere. That's where I'm going with, with what I want to do with my magic is I want to give a piece. I want to give people a reason to care. And I do believe that if they like you, they're going to like your magic. But but instead of laying it on so thick with stuff that isn't real, bad jokes and stock patter and just bullshit right. and try to make it something about something, something. And I'm not talking about turning it into a story trick or turning it, you know, I just think that the, you know, it could be in the segues. It could be in the, you know, it could be in the trick. It could be, as, you know, I don't know. There's so many opportunities to, to, to do that. And I, 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 maybe that's what, maybe that's part of my problem is I see so much magic that's, it's homogenized, mm. you know, to Chris Randall's credit, he did a beautiful split fan routine. He flashed very little, right. you know, that I always grade harshly on that. Do I see the cards or not? Right. But ultimately, does it really matter? Like we were saying with the thimbles, what the fuck is it? You know, I mean, you're producing endless bits of cards. Why should I care? I'm not so sure. I don't know. I guess if we care because we go, wow, that's really hard. You right. know, we know what it takes to do the physical manipulations, but yeah. you know, for all the audience knows is it's easy, you know, and, and certainly everybody does it. So it's yeah. not as, you know, I shouldn't say every, I don't do it, but, uh, but, uh, but I think like, and I've talked to quote unquote lay people who have that sort of reaction where they're like, I don't know if a trick is hard or not. I kind of see the tricks is like, Oh, he does a magic trick. Every magician does that magic trick because they're all magicians. They have to do the same. That's all four chop cup routines the other night. Yeah, exactly. Mike's was the best, though, wasn't yeah. it? Mike. Especially Eliminate, I loved. Of everybody that we saw. You know, you know why I loved That's my that? my favorite. Oh, yeah. You know why I didn't see the vanish? Or the the, uh, the switch? Because I couldn't see shit. I'm two heads back. Yeah, I was, on, like, I was on the side, and I just caught it. I was like, yeah, but it was, it was beautifully done. It was, his timing is exceptional. Oh, yeah. And you know what? Stuff. To his credit, not a lot of Waka Waka. He had, and you know what? He had some uh, compelling themes in there with his time travel theme and his yeah. funny share line. And you know, I thought that no, he that uh, he's a really good example of somebody who's uh, finding his own yeah. and to finding his own voice. And you can't really compare him to anybody. I mean, it's yeah. like yeah, I can't compare Mike to anybody, Mike Machado. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that was good. Glad yeah. you guys got to see him. Yeah, me too. I'd heard a lot about him. Yeah. Huge fan of John Carney's. I thought he did a great job. I did too. I, was, I, li I liked the thimbles. I, no, I, 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 never, I never see anyone do thimbles. No, no, no one does it. It's beautiful. But but like the card fanning, it, it, what does it mean? What does it, and I guess another question is, does it have to mean anything? You know, I mean, does it, you know, can it just be 
the visual beauty of it, which I guess the answer is yes, because, but I'm like you, I, you know, I couldn't, I can't see the thimbles enough because you never see it. Right. I think you met that Bobby Shulgold the night before, maybe. No. Uh, what is he? He didn't, he just had a little rat tail pony. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He does beautiful thimble routine. Oh, nice. I think he was in our little round robin, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh. I think it's interesting to see the evolution. I mean, we've known each other for 20 years and to see your evolution to where you are now and how you see your audiences, you know, even though you're still doing the, still giving them the, the pitch in the middle of it. Um, you're, it's a, a less aggressive. Yeah. Well, certainly the, the, the old stuff doesn't work anymore. You know, you either got to move on or get run over, I guess. It's interesting because I think, sorry, um, I think about social media a lot and how there's certain magicians now that are making names for themselves as social media magicians, Rick Lax, um, uh, Justin Flom, and uh, you get a sense, at least from my perspective, you get a sense of more of a real person whereas not a like you see a chris angel maybe audiences see him as a real person maybe they don't see that as a character or a brand or an image i thought, uh, I thought he was that way <laughs> don't you <laughs> i'll bet he wears he those believes, necklaces every day of the week if he believes <laughs> that if he believes that image of himself yeah then of course yeah i, I don't know him but i don't know him but uh, I'll bet he does. I'll bet that's yeah. his thing, you know. Yeah. But it's just interesting to, to think of how social media is evolving uh, people's interaction with magic because we're getting, like, you know, Rick Lackford with 40 million views and Justin Flaw, you know, what, millions and millions of views. So people are having, even though millions of people in the context of 7 billion on the planet is a drop in the bucket, but there's still much more wider um engagement with magic i feel and with personalities rather than characters do you know what i mean does that yeah. make sense yeah. right do you think that's had i, I think you're absolutely right and you know what i i i love social media you know that i'm all over facebook yeah. and in fact i'm pretty sure that i'm far more interesting on facebook than i am in real life <laughs> Oh, to the racetrack. I'm hanging out with Vince Willington. But no, I, you know, I, I, there are some guys that I have a group of guys. I call them the young guns of LA. Mm -hmm. And there's some of my younger friends that are just nailing it. And I just got to meet for the first time a, a young guy that I'm real. I just met him for the first time. Been a big fan for the last few years is uh, Justin Wilman. Mm -hmm. You guys seen him or yeah. familiar with him? Mm hmm he he's got a comedy uh, comedy central special coming up nice. but he uh he uses his social media really good and it helps him grow his fan base mm -hmm. and uh you know yeah i'm all about it i like it strangely i'm happy if i get a hundred views on anything you know? right right well, it's an interesting it's an interesting game because it's almost in a sense like street performing right is that you're just this voice turn your sound up <laughs> right yeah i'm like what do you think i'm stupid like to lock in to your answer, answer. Uh, like but it, but it works tom apparently it yeah, works like, yeah, you know, god bless him 
God bless so, the Christ. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's interesting to 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 approach social media from the mindset of like it is kind of like building a street show and. I hadn't really thought about it, but it's, it's funny. You're right. You know, you're, except there's really, you know, it's funny. People say to me all the time, oh yeah, I do some street magic. And, and there's a big difference between their definition of street magic and my definition of street magic. And the biggest difference is if you're not asking for money, it's not street performing. We used to call it close-up magic. Right. You'd go out and you'd be doing some magic for people. That's close-up magic, not street magic. You know, that's we used a bit of a marketing word these days. Uh, but there really isn't, at the end of a Rick Lax video, there's no call to action, is there? There's no donate in my PayPal account here to buy this trick. Actually, no, it was. He does work for Penguin, though, right? And he puts his, the links to the to the tricks Certain that he's facts. demonstrating. Yeah. So there is a call to action then. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that about, you're right, that is sort of like, I'm competing for two minutes of your time to get you to look at this trick enough to see if you want to buy it. That's great. I mean, to me, that's brilliant. And the larger the audience you can gather. Yeah. Yeah. And he does well, right? This is fantastic. I think you, I think of, at this point, social, probably, like, I guess you could call it a social media expert. I mean, he's figured out at least how to make Facebook, and at least Facebook work and YouTube. I think some of these guys are pulling down a reasonable living off of their, just off of that. And it's like, how do you do that? I want to learn how to do that. Marketing and advertising. <laughs> we're, we're slowly learning that. Yeah. Well, Aaron Fisher certainly has got his own, you know, he's got his own yeah, school, you know, his own uh, community that he's grown and uh, just wonderful. Yeah. And that's kind of the idea with this too, being the first book with all the interviews, taking, distilling out, you know, all the, uh, the salient points from everybody. And putting it into like a workbook, kind of. Good a luck with Danny. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How how do you put that on paper? On this, apply this to your no, life. No, you just go. You know what? <laughs> you know what? It's got to be a pop up on that page. It's got to be a pop up. You know, eyeballs come up out of the. That would be brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> that would be so brilliant. Yeah, Should what, what an interesting. Yeah, he's just got a. He's got an interesting mind. Beautiful mind. Anything, uh, have you, have you given, have you, did you tell us that any advice that you would give like a younger guy right now that's, that would come to you? No waka waka. No Stay waka. away from stock lines. Don't buy a stratosphere. Um, <laughs> however, I shouldn't say that. In fact, you know what? There's one, the only stratosphere routine that I ever saw that was any good was done by a guy who you should definitely be talking. Actually, he wrote his own book. Yeah. Max Howard. Yeah, and no, I thought I was just going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, wrote, <laughs> he wrote his own best. Yeah. 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 But uh, his, uh, his stratosphere <laughs> routine is awe-inspiring. Yeah. Uh, I think if I could give any, any advice would be do not be insufferable. Hmm. Resist the urge to be insufferable. And maybe I can I, to tell you what this means. And and because uh, a lot of people are confused when I say that. It was a girl in Seattle who first told me that I was insufferable by, we used to be swing dance partners. We weren't dating or anything. I was going through my divorce, but it was just, it was all about the dancing. And, and uh, so a magician shows up 
Neil Sturton from Scotland. I don't know if you know him or not, but he shows up to, to hang out at the bar and dance and see what, <clears throat> talk tricks. And he shows up, and all of a sudden, I start just geeking out with him. And Julie is sort of hot for him a little. But I can't get my head out of the deck of cards long enough to give a shit what she thought. (laughs) So she said, do you have to be insufferable? (laughs) And it hit me that moment like a lightning bolt. There is a time and a place to take your deck of cards out and talk tricks with the boys. And it's typically not when the girls are around. (laughs) <laughs> just out of politeness you know i mean just oh you want to see another trick really <laughs> oh I, I didn't even ask that i'm going to show it to you anyways <laughs> you know just, yeah yeah and i think that if there's any advice that i can give and i don't know how you can harness youthful exuberance i don't know if it's even possible but certainly the idea if presented at a, as a as somebody who may be as young as a teenager, that having an advanced sense of that into your 20s, it would really give you a step up in terms of how to relate to your audience and understand who to do what for, when, where, and why. You know? Know your audience. Yeah, and know their attention span. And I'll tell you their attention span already because I know it and it ain't long. (laughs) What would you estimate? What do you think? You know, I just think it really depends. You know, I think that that uh, on the street in a perfect situation, and just to let you know that a perfect situation can mean the difference of 10 degrees in the weather. You know, oh, it's a little chilly or it's a little hot. Those two factors can change the, you know, people don't want to stand around in 115 degree heat and watch a show for a half an hour. They just don't. Um I think it just changes. You know, I think that that's where it has to do with who you're talking to. You know, I mean, if you're used to dealing with people that spend most of their time on their phones, I know they have an algorithm for the attention span that way. And it's got to be seconds. It's got to be less than 30, you know, 20 seconds. I don't know how long it is, but it's like scroll, scroll to the next thing on Instagram pictures, whatever, you know, it's like, how long do you really give any one thing? Yeah, it's about 37 seconds. But yeah. <laughs> on, our, on, some, on some of our videos on our insights, we noticed that like a minute video, people would probably watch about 30 seconds. Of it. Amazing. That's unbelievable to me. That's, that's un- about standard. That's about, that's, yeah, the that's, standard that's a shame. Age. You know, can you imagine the attention span pre TV? Holy shit. People would sit in a room and listen to a box. Yeah. You know, they would listen to the radio for, for you know, they listen to a few ra- half hour radio shows. You know, can you imagine doing that? Well, we listen to a lot of music. So, I mean, I can, I, I can, I can get that. But I mean, they must have had, you know, a full evening show for Thurston was three hours. Jeez. Oh, come on now. <laughs> you know, Copperfield's capped it at 90 minutes and even, right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely, well, being able to walk around with televisions in our pockets, you know. I guess when you're doing a half an hour show, at least you know, oh, I'm doing a half an hour show. And rarely are you booked for a show that's too long out of the realm of somebody's attention span. I mean, the longest show any magician's going to do, unless you're doing a full stage show, is probably an hour, right? Right. Nobody's going to want to book you for an hour, you know, a 90 minute after dinner show, I don't think, you know. Um, but, you know, I think, wow, okay, now you have an hour to kill. Just the question is, is, oh, how much filler material do I put in there? You know, wow, now I'm going to put in the tricks that uh, I don't even really like that much. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
find good material, find material that resonates with you, get good at it, practice all the time with video. To, with video. This is something that boggles my mind. When I work the castle, I tape every show I do every night. My wife thinks I'm crazy because my act is almost word for word the same, right. but I'm studying those other things. Right. I'm studying what is there, you know, and I'm studying transitions and I'm trying to see if I'm getting any better at losing the stupid jokes out of my cup routine. Right. Don't squeeze it too hard or they'll go blind. You know I mean? That's stupid. That was <laughs> not funny back in the day when Cellini said it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you. You're welcome. I, <laughs> I like how he, whatever, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh. No, that was awesome. <laughs> well, no, like I said, that's a good example of night and day. Danny is a guy who's constantly thinking about everything. And I'm, I'm discovering this about myself that I am happiest when I'm thinking about nothing, you know, and there are very few people that can do that. You know, I'm, I'm lucky that, you hear about people studying meditation to get to a point. I live at that place every day. Right. No, I'm really happy smoking a cigar in my backyard, petting a cat. I'm not thinking about tricks. I'm not thinking about anything. You know, I'm just enjoying the afternoon. Yeah. But that's why I'm not a millionaire yet. After seeing Joel Bauer twice. Right. Jesus. That's a hustle. That guy was he did he did a 30-minute psychokinetic touch routine at 8 in the morning and had this embedded riff that was so fucking intense. In fact, he was talking about his seminar. And he says, you probably think one of the three things about this. <clears throat> what does he say? It's fake. Or it doesn't work. It's real or a trick. I forget what it, but he had some way. Then, then he starts going to the psychic kinetic touch and he says, I'm not going to tell you which one of the three this seminar or this, this, uh, this, ex uh, this experiment is. And then, you know what else he used for the psychic kinetic touch, which was interesting loops. Oh yeah. I'd never seen anybody do it that way. So, yeah. That's so man. Yeah. It was, it was really reaction. <laughs> he is, he has evolved a character's, he also is in town. I don't know if you can get a hold of him or not. He's on Facebook, I think. Okay. And, uh, but he, uh, I would think he would enjoy talking to, you know, because he is, man. Yeah. It's funny. He wants people to dress a certain way and be a certain way. And after going to a seminar, I'm like, I don't want to be a Joel bot. Right. I don't want to be a fucking robot like this guy. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what we ran into. Um, when I was doing the restaurant magic business stuff with Kostya in Orlando and we were basically, you know, moving across the country, putting magicians in, we had to bring everybody in, train them. Uh, you know, it was very, very systematic the way that uh, we approached the brand and yeah, you it's great. Form little it's nice. give people some, some context <laughs> instead of going in on, you know, yeah. I just got a thing in the mail the other day. I was telling about that the teacher of mine, the 10 years old at Haynes. He croaked a while back, and uh, maybe 20 years ago, actually. But his son has got some of his magic and was getting rid of it. And he said, you know, selling it. Do you want any of my dad's stuff? And I'm like, he had a really interesting way to table hop. Tell me if you've ever seen anyone use a prop like this. 
and he used to work at Max and Irma's back in the day in, in Ohio, and he had that gig for years. But I think he would approach the table, see if they wanted to see a little bit of magic, and then he would bring in this thing. It looked like a suitcase, but it's on rollers, and you sit on it, and it has uh, drawers in there. So he would sort of <laughs> he would sort of bring this thing up to the table, and then he would sit down on it. Now he's at now he's at everybody's level, and he's pulling out the drawer, and he's getting his loads for his uh, chop cup routine. Mm, and it, that's unbelievable. And so the kid sent me, <laughs> sent me the box. Oh wow! For free, you know. I mean, it was sixty one dollars to ship it, which I was happy to pay. But, uh, <laughs> that's just, beautiful. Um, but uh, I thought, you know, it was funny when I, I I always remembered looking at that and going, "That's interesting." Yeah, yeah I've never seen never seen anybody do that. Yeah. I've seen the tables that clip and all that stuff, but never. That's wild. I'm sort of a deck of cards and five coin, five coins at a table guy. I was a deck of cards, five coins, and juggernaut. There you go. That's that was that was usually my my that was my whole routine. We sold a few of those, didn't we, Mark oh, Jensen? Yeah, <sighs> That's why I just we just uh, I'm working on because I wanted to after the final two loads of the corks, I wanted to do another load like one big bang. So since my wife's a flight attendant, we have a bunch of those little alcoholic bottles. And it fits. Alcoholic. Bottles <laughs> <laughs> of alcohol. Alcoholic bottles. And um, yeah, like you can just load them and, and it comes right out. Because I'll kind of want to have a martini and do something with it. I have an excellent story story. I'd forgotten about this until you just mentioned that. <clears throat> Flying back from Breckenridge, thinking that a cocktail sounded like a good idea. I think I ordered uh, whatever I ordered. Uh, Gave her my credit card and it wouldn't work. We'd go through and I'm like, oh my double, my double crown was disappearing before my eyes. <laughs> and, and so uh, I guess I, I was going to pay cash and she's like, we only take credit cards, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, wow, I'm just feeling like shit over here. And, and then she's like, here, just. And then not if the machine that's not working, it's not the card, just by the way. And she ended up giving me the booze for free. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and then I was going to give her the money as a tip. And she refused that as well. And I was like, wow, oh, that's... You push hard enough to still take it. It's like a Disney <laughs> three rule. You really wanted to take the three times. Yeah, no, no, no. no, no, no. I, I wasn't sure. I was getting a... a actually, I was more excited about the drink than giving her the 10 bucks in tip. I think I said, are you sure? I think I tried like once or twice. Are you sure? But I, I wasn't forceful with it. I, which now that I know that, I was, if that happens again, I'll... After our conversation, we decided to go for a hike in the beautiful Hollywood Hills. Tom was gracious enough to drop us off at the Griffith Observatory, where we took in the sights of L.A. from above. The next day, we had to pack our bags and say goodbye to the City of Angels. <laughs> 